There was a time in Toronto, I guess we can call it the good old days, when housing and real estate was so simple. A family who already owned a home, they outgrew their home because of the arrival of a few more kids, so they decide to find something bigger and sell their existing home. It was that easy. Or a young couple starting out would decide to buy a home, they'd get good jobs, save up their money, and enter the housing market. No problem. But that's all changed. A lot of families with existing homes just can't find that next home to move up into, so they stay put. Some of that has to do with the cost of selling, then buying again, a cost we've estimated with the double land transfer tax in Ontario, commissions, legal and moving fees to be about $100,000. And for young people with the high prices, they can't even afford to get into the market. So what can be done? Well, the Ontario government appointed a task force to address the problem. And the task force just released 55 recommendations to boost the housing supply in the province. I'm Desmond Brown, and today on Sold in the Six, we'll look into these recommendations with Toronto Star real estate reporter Tess Kalinowski to see if they're realistic. Tess, I love having you on the podcast. Welcome back. Thank you, Tess. I love being with you. Oh, great. So this is quite an ambitious plan. They have 55 recommendations to level off the cost of buying a home, and they say they want to develop or will develop 1.5 million homes over the next 10 years. What is your initial reaction to this report? I know you wrote about it. Well, I think that there's widespread agreement that there's a supply shortage in the housing industry. And um, there is a very basic economic supply and demand thesis underlying that. Um, Late the last few days, I've been talking to people who are skeptical. And in fact, what's interesting is the day after the report came out, the census released some data Mm -hmm. showing that there are actually more homes than people coming into the province, which kind of makes you wonder you know, is there a supply shortage or not? But yes, it's ambitious. And and, uh, I think that uh, everybody's in agreement that we need more housing and more affordable housing. What everybody is not in agreement on is whether or not this is the path to affordability. Oh, but you just threw a little twist at me there, this the census. I did not read that. Can you go a little bit more into that? You said there's more housing than people? Well, my colleague at the Global Mail, Rachel Young Lai, who I know you you know and have you've had a yes. she's she's a smart woman, and she wrote a story showing that um, that I was busy that day, so I apologize, I don't have the details, but her story suggested there were more new units available in the Toronto area than um, residents. So the question is, what's happening to the difference? Um, I guess it depends on the amount of uh, of what kind of units those are. And uh, I, I'm sorry, I only have a, a rudimentary of Rachel's story, but that was certainly threw some questions out. It sure does. Because it makes you think, like, there's there are always these calls to tax um, owners, you know, property owners who are leaving things empty. We're hearing a lot of that. Um, so maybe it's along this line. I'm going to have to look into this a little more. Uh, well, I'll send you Rachel's story when we're through here. Okay. Okay. Well, let's get back to this task force report. Now, yes. the members of this task force um, include like the CEO of, of Scotiabank Global Banking, 
Jake Lawrence and a number of other people from the private sector. Um, I'm a little bit skeptical about a couple of things. I mean, I when I first spoke to you about this report, I I said, you know what? At least it seems a little bit more concrete. But the things that we have to keep in mind here: number one, it's an election year in Ontario. Uh, June second, we're going to the polls and. The government is saying that they want to implement some of these changes before that election. So it's obviously an election ploy. And we've heard this through our federal election as well. Uh, lots of promises and not a lot of action. And as we know, housing is one of the top concerns among Ontario voters. So is it, do you have that type of skepticism as well? Well, of course. I mean, everything going forward will have that lens applied to it. And uh, there's no question that... Uh, you know, it is an election year and the Conservative government will be looking for ways to ingratiate itself with the population. And people are very concerned about being able to afford a home. So saying that they're going to build mm -hmm. more homes and then that added supply will bring down the cost for young buyers is obviously going to be, I would think, would be very popular. I mean, our own paper seems to be endorsing that this is a good a good ploy. Mm -hmm. I think... Um, you know, it's a very sweeping report. So there are 55 recommendations, everything, and, and many of them are technical things that your average listener would not care about or understand. They're technical planning issues, and they range from things like the Ontario Land Tribunal, which has a backlog of a thousand developments wow. <laughs> um, and, and promises to clear those. That's come up with the government before adding more um, adjudicators to that tribunal. So a lot of that is is less germane to your your average listener than than the things such as exclusionary zoning, um, which will affect potentially every neighborhood in Toronto. That's a real key to this. Now it's almost like the well the province has always pointed the finger at the municipalities as saying that there's too much red tape and that's slowing down development and slowing down uh, housing, affordable housing, we're just the supply of housing. So in part of this report, uh, one of the recommendations is to increase the density in neighborhoods, in single family um, home neighborhoods, and in, in some cases, allowing up to like four units in a property. And that's not, I mean, it's, a, it's great, but a lot of people in the, in these neighborhoods are going to oppose this, as you know, right? Like there is that nimbyism, even though they're saying they want to aim at fighting this nimbyism, it's always going to be there. Uh, yes, I imagine some people will object. I think it's, uh, I think that is coming late. Um, the, the city at the province's behest has already begun introducing these new um, denser housing requirements into 70% of Toronto neighborhoods that are zoned for exclusively for single family dwellings. So they've already, we're already down this road. We've already got policies that direct uh, the building of secondary suites, usually bedroom suites, but they can also be built in other parts of a home. We have policies allowing laneway suites yeah, laneway. and we have garden suites, which are for more for the suburbs because all the laneways are downtown, but garden suites are essentially the same thing, except you don't need a laneway. <laughs> Um, yeah. So, yeah. And, you know, most residents groups will go to city hall meetings and they will say, 
yeah, we think this is a good idea, except, except they're too high, except we feel overlooked, except street parking. So they, they have some pretty standard objections to these things, but they think it's a good idea. So you know there's resistance out there. Um, in Long Branch, for example, that residence group is very concerned about the tree canopy, and they always say, yes, except this is going to bring down trees in our neighborhood. So yeah, that, that what's called nimbyism is still out there. Now, yeah. I, I think it's fair to say, like, I think we have to be honest and say we have to open up this land. It's just this is not equitable. We have to get more people into the into those neighborhoods. However, I think it's fair to say that people who worked hard and saved or for whatever reason managed to get a house in one of those desirable, what they call them, stable neighborhoods, um, they feel a bit betrayed by some of this, I think. I think they ha- also have children and grandchildren and they worry about their ability to get housing. But, um, yeah, for sure. you know, I do think they probably feel a little bit betrayed. And I can understand it's uncomfortable for them. Yep, so can I. It, it, it is. And, you know, it, it's it's almost, well, when you take a look at this this government, and I, I voted for every single political party out there in, in my lifetime, so I'm not affiliated to any party. But the Ontario government does not, this particular Ontario government, does not have a really good track record when it comes to like protecting our green space for starters um and also there's another thing in here that alarmed me and that is our heritage you know our heritage buildings and um this report talks about you know um being able to repeal some of those policies that protect and preserve a neighborhood's character so that means heritage and we've seen what the Ontario government has done with our foundry building down in the, um, I guess, what in, in, in the Don Valley uh, Lakeshore area there, where they just walked in and started a demolition on it. <laughs> and, uh, you know, the, the, the whole, whole neighborhood stood up against it and slowed it down a little bit, but they eventually got their way. There's just not a lot of respect for heritage. So I can see people in the cities being a little bit, you know, reluctant to trust the government when it comes to, you know, looking after the housing in our cities. Well, I think that in on the heritage role that speaks to me is the one that uh, they're they're going to disallow once a developer has a has a an approval to develop a property. The the city can no longer go in and declare it a heritage property. The designation of heritage that protects the building has to be made before. Before that, yeah. Um, and, and you know, in a way, I kind of see the fairness in that because, you know, say no up front <laughs> rather than waiting until yeah, then. a company has, has put their information. But I don't know very much about the heritage designation. Um, yeah, I mean, I think Toronto has been tearing down its heritage for years, blocking its... We've made some horrible mistakes. Oh, my uh, many, many beautiful things have been torn down or kind of mangled, um, and we've blocked our lakefront. Uh, we've we've done some silly things uh, in sure have. in the quest for the dollar. But um, yeah, I I think heritage is something we have to watch carefully. Okay, so this idea of building a garden suite or laneway housing just turns you on. But where are you going to get the money from? Well, how about refinancing your home? And I recommend if you want to refinance your home to do something like this, 
to get in touch with Jason Georgopoulos of Dominion Lending. Jason will help you through the whole process. You can get in touch with him at jasong at dominionlending.ca. So a couple of the other things here, like they talk about, like you said, I've, I've already touched on it, but eliminating the red tape. Okay, sure. The province wants to take over the zoning, the municipal zoning and so on. Um, I can see a little bit of a fight happening here. Like you said, we have, we had what was, um, what was it called? The Ontario Municipal Board that would, um, yeah. that would look after the hearings for any disputes and so on with um, appeals to, to building and so on. And in a lot of cases, the residents felt like the board always ruled in favor of the developers, in favor of the builders. So, you know, it, it, it's been, it, it, it's been quite a fight for, you know, through the years with, with, with that, with that particular uh, institution in place. But with all of these other recommendations that come up, what, what are some of the other highlights do you find? Like, are they going to really be able to get to that point where they're promising the 1.5 million new homes over the next 10 years? Well, a lot of people can't see it because, first of all, in home building, 10 years is not a long time. And that is, although it's still only on average building about half that many. And, you know, the new systems that they're talking about won't be introduced overnight. I think one important thing to note, um, especially it's very understandable when you uh, adopt it to the uh, exclusionary zoning issue, is that the government, oh, the province always professes it wants to work with the municipal government. But you you have many municipal councillors who would tell you that taking exclusionary zoning off their neighbourhood is really going to upset their constituents. Yes. If it takes that zoning capacity out of the city's hands, it's kind of tied the hands of, of the people who are elected to council to protect those neighborhoods. To me, that's a bit of a contradiction. It sure is. And I'm, I'm not clear on how that will work. I mean, it means that, and these are typically suburban councillors, can't hold up um, things like multiplex rules in their neighborhoods and so forth anymore, which on balance is probably a good thing. However, it does sort of, um, in a way, take away one of the key responsibilities of protecting uh, their neighborhoods from locally elected officials. It does, because basically part of this report is recommending uniform provincial standards. So their yeah. neighborhoods are different all throughout the whole province. And what you were talking about neighborhood character earlier, and for sure heritage is part of character. Um, however... A lot of the groups that oppose exclusion, that oppose, um, you know, opening up the stable neighborhoods, use the term character to oppose that uh, broadening of building types. They use it because uh, it's, um, you know, they see their neighborhood as a leafy single family home neighborhood. That's how they see their character, you know, the no houses that are three and four stories high. Um, so the word character gets thrown around a lot and it can't, it's certainly apl applicable to heritage, but it is applicable to any neighborhood. It is applicable to, um, I mean, you could apply it to a condo district like the distillery district. Sure. It's historical, but, and it has character, but it's also a bunch of new towers, right? Yes, it is. And you know, it's, it's funny you say that because, because there, some people sometimes, 
mix up age of a building with a heritage designation. So just because a building's old and it could be really ugly, uh, they want to protect it. Where there's really no, there, there's no real heritage about the building. And we see that in some of our neighborhoods here too. Like just because this thing is like an eyesore and it has no real architecture uh, or great architectural features to it. There's no real history to it, but it's old. So they're saying, no, you're not going to rip it down. And uh, that gets muddied quite a bit. But when you take a look at what we've lost in this city as far and what we've had to protect, like we had to protect old city hall. I mean, that was slated to be torn down. You know, um, the old armory building that was right adjacent to Nathan Phillips Square, like that was one beautiful building, but torn down to make way for the, the courthouse on University Avenue. And that, you know, I think was built during what they called the brutalist era, uh, era of architecture. And, you know, the irony of, of it, I think, is that, you know, that era was brutal. You know, when you take a look at through the 70s on what they tore down and what they built in this city, it is just, oh, my God, what happened to what happened to Toronto? Uh, so it's I, I, I can see where they're coming from, like you said, to protect something that is truly a heritage building with all of those architectural elements. But, you know, like I say, sometimes the buildings are just old and they got to go. Yeah, sometimes. And sometimes a neighborhood is just really, really nice, but it needs to be shared. I mean, yeah, if you look it really at, does. If you look at a lot of uh, Toronto single family neighborhoods and, and Long Branch is a good example, you've got big, deep lots there. Um, really, it is a lovely place, but, you know, certainly there, <laughs> there's plenty of room to build more housing on each of those lots. And, uh, mm -hmm. you know, it just, it's not fair for the sake maybe of, of some trees or, Whatever. I mean, somebody can still build a monster house on a on a lot, a house that's much that that's not in keeping with the character that's there now, really. Although because of the propensity of this, it actually is becoming the character. Um, oh God, we see these all over the place. Well, look at Bayview Avenue and Shepherd. You, there's nothing much left. North York. There's nothing much left of those old uh, post-war bungalow neighborhoods. Um, yeah. So so. You know, it's, why wouldn't you trade it for a place that could could accommodate two or three, four families or individuals rather than, you know, just one family in a much bigger place? And that's that's essentially the trade off, right? Yeah, it really is. You know, the, in in the report, they also said that a shortage of land isn't the cause of the problem. They said that land's available both inside the existing built up areas and on undeveloped land outside of Greenbelts and that we need to make better use of the land. So, yeah, I mean, that's what we're talking about, making better use of the land that we have out there uh, while still protecting some of these, you know, wonderful green spaces that we have here in our province. But the one thing that the task force also said, too, is that, you know, Toronto's always wanted to be this world-class city, as you know, we always wanted to be like a London or a Paris or a New York. But we just have one quarter of the population density of major cities like New York and London. So they really do feel that there's a lot more room within our city. And what's that going to look like? Is it going to look like, you know, obviously multi, multi-family homes, but also more skyscrapers? Yeah, for sure. And, and 
then they're talking about putting those around transit stations. So you, what you'll see probably are more towers along Eglinton Avenue, for example, mm-hmm. where there are a whole bunch of new transit stations going up. But it will also look a lot like um, yeah. Young and Eglinton, for example. Young and Eglinton is a, is a story I've covered a few times over the last few years, where residents feel like they live in a construction zone, where they had a plan to densify their neighborhood, and the province took that plan and said, nope, not dense enough. And so you've got all this uh, additional density being poured into those neighborhoods where I think they used to be single family homes and there are still those streets, but many people are already living in towers there and just feel kind of overrun with the construction. Now, my understanding is that at Young and Eglinton, the city is already above its provincial density targets, but... Oh, it is, yeah. Yeah, but neighborhoods where that have not met those provincial density targets, the the province is recommending, not the province, the task force, because the province hasn't done anything about the task force yet, but the task force is recommending they just take the limit off heights. You can build any height of skyscraper you want if if the city hasn't met its density targets in that node. So, wow. um, you know, you're going to, you can have hundred story towers if the city within two years hasn't got a plan to, put in the density the province is requiring. Whoa, that's, to me, that's a little bit scary. It is, but yeah. Yeah, it sounds scary. But, you know, I think the city probably has plans to to densify pretty much every transit node that's coming. I mean, the city's not oblivious to the fact that we need that space. I, I think, you know, in most cases, even on, you know, Eglinton's a subway corridor once the crosstown opens, but even along yeah, St. Built. Yeah. <laughs> but even along St. Clair, you know, with the St. Clair streetcar right of way, one of the things you saw happening even before the, the right of way opened was more dense building going on along those corridors. It's a natural. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, I guess that makes sense. Um, the waterfront, like you said, we've already cut it off. Um, we, we've lost it you know, all through the downtown core that we've lost the waterfront. So I know my wife, every time uh, she sees, every time we drive along the, or, or, or go along the lakeshore along there, she's saying, I just know there's going to be another building going up here soon. There's going to be another one. And it, it is a little bit disappointing on that we've sold off our waterfront. And I mean, we always compare our, ourselves to a place like Chicago that um, was great at protecting the waterfront and protecting their heritage. Um, but I just hope that, I mean, I know there are a lot of, um, a lot of the land along there has already been bought and they're waiting to develop as well, but it's, um, it's still, you know, pretty disappointing in my view anyway, on what, what's happened down there. Um, the other thing too, that the province says that they'll do is that if a city misses a deadline, um, for the approval of, uh, developments and so on, then the project's just going to automatically get the green light. And again, I know you, you, you spoke about this already. It's just that um, with the province meddling in municipal affairs, it really is a little bit contradictory. Why do we have these municipal representat- representatives? I think there's going to have to be some kind of appeal or some kind of cushion around that. I mean, that just seems too arbitrary to me because sometimes a missed deadline can be for a perfect, like, look, look what would have happened if, if at the beginning of the pandemic, 
that rule had been applied. Mm-hmm. That would have made no sense, right? Or there are there are outside circumstances. What I think is ironic is a story that the CBC has done a good job of and the Toronto Star has covered as well is, um, you know, the province wants to limit public consultations developments because it thinks that, this is back to what you were talking about, NIMBYs are holding up the development process in places where we really do need new houses. But, you know... <laughs> At the same time, the minister is, Minister Stephen Clark is, is holding up a, a project, a, a, an affordable housing project, because he feels there haven't been enough consultations and the MPP and neighbor is on the side of the neighbors who say, we don't want this here. You've probably heard about this one. This is the modular housing that's sitting in a TTC parking lot waiting to be assembled. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, so, you know, <laughs> It's it's kind of, it, it strikes me that the minister's kind of talking both sides of his mouth. There have been consultations, ample consultations. The mayor has said, we've followed the rules, and the mayor is committed to getting this housing built. It's like you said, people just don't want it. No, it, it's, it is so true, isn't it? Yeah, I guess, you know, the, the, the things, you know, that it's actually quoted here in the report, um, you know, you talked about a, about the consultation, but just you know, a step before that is that one of the proposals would weed out or prevent appeals that are aimed purely at delaying projects. Now, that's a subjective statement because how do they, like, how, how do they um, say or gauge the merit on what a delay tactic is? Yeah, I don't know. I think what they're saying is, there are consultations that are legislated. There are a minimum amount that are legislated, uh, you know, a minimum amount with the public, a minimum with the stakeholders, with the municipalities, etc. Beyond that, developers don't need to keep doing these make nice talks with neighborhood groups. They need to move on. And so I think there's a legislated amount of consultation. Yeah, but, you know, and it's so important to speak to these groups because, you know, if developers are given their their way all the way through, then you're not going to see any any park development. You know, what if you're you're building a huge development, let's say, of another, you know, of a thousand houses or whatever, you know, and if you don't have the green space or parks or even, you know, schools, um, what are you left with? You know, the, 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 the pressure from this neighborhood just spreads out to everybody else and everything else around it. So I think that's really, I think it's really, really important that the consult, the consultative side of this remains. But uh, again, you know. Well, I think the consultations will remain. I think the point is, you know, you get your, you get your, first of all, municipalities have to do a better job in some cases of informing the public that consultations are available on a project. And second of all, you know, community groups who many people say don't actually represent there's a lot of talk lately about neighborhood associations not representing their neighborhoods only representing a small group of activists they need to get their ducks in a row get to the consultation and accept when the decision's made i think there has to be some uh recognition that you can't you, you're not gonna get your way like we have to make room for other people yes yeah we sure and do you know, you can't always expect it's going to be 10 blocks over. Sometimes it's going to be in your backyard. 
and you just get over it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yep, it's for the good of our communities. It's for the good of our society. It's for the good of our city. It's for the good of our children and grandchildren, for heaven's sake. Yeah, yeah definitely. Um, is there anything else in the report that stands out to you as uh, we start getting ready to wrap this up? Well, I do think um, it'll be interesting to see what they can and will do before the election. Um, there are a couple of, like the exclusionary zoning issue, as I said before, does seem to be mm -hmm. gaining steam. And I think, um, you know, the province can certainly has a chance here to point to some really excellent projects. There are many in Toronto. Um, the one thing I would say about the report is it and, and some of the people on the on the committee that, that wrote it said it was not their task to look at um, government supported and supportive housing, things like uh, CMHC housing and uh uh, sorry, City of Toronto? Yeah, yeah, that's, uh, uh you, you know what I mean. Toronto Community Housing. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, Toronto Community Housing, yeah, Toronto community <laughs> housing that's right. <laughs> you know, they said it wasn't their job to look at that, but people yeah. I talked to in the aftermath from both the, the political opposition and um, affordable housing advocates said, without talking about that in a report as sweeping as this, we're, we're missing a big part of the issue. Like this is very much about is. what that is huge about what the private sector can do for housing, and you know the one thing I have learned about housing, covering it for a few years, is it is complicated and perhaps partly dysfunctional because it is the the private and public sectors are so commingled in the whole issue um, at at so many levels, and without discussing that, without dis without sort of putting them in the same room as it were, in the same report, you're really sort of depriving one arm of the housing equation for, with, from oxygen. Oh, are you ever? Like when you take a look at what, um, what, they've done, what they've done with Regent Park, I mean, that's a really good example of, you say, the private and public sector getting together. And uh, I guess Daniels Corporation was the leader on that redevelopment of Regent Park. And the new Regent Park seems to be working. It, it, it is a mix of, of, um, of rental housing along with, you know, the condominiums that have been sold along there. And it's much better than it was. I mean, it has a long way to go and it's still going to have its problems. But at the same time, it's much healthier to mix it, to mix the, the, the rental with, the condo, with condos. It's just with, for the people and for the young people you know, for the kids to see that they could aspire to owning something if they're in a rental, um, instead of just having them thrown out on an island in a Toronto community housing where they feel like there's no hope. And we've seen, and, and that's where community housing hasn't worked. You know, we see that all around the city too. So I think that, you know, those type of projects are, are just great for the overall fabric of, of the cities. Well, you know, uh, what I think is, the, you know the the province has done a good job of saying okay so we're gonna we're gonna play the the bigfoot on things like exclusionary zoning but what didn't go into the report was any minimum affordability standard for new housing development and um, the city has some exclusionary inclusionary zoning rules that they ha have been pressing on but it seems to me that many many projects. Uh, it's it's an open negotiation and it just goes on and on and on. And one thing affordable housing advocates say is most of these um, affordable units that are supposed to be affordable to at market rent and below 
Um, they have a life lease on them. Like some of them are, they can go anywhere from, you know, 15 to, to, to a hundred years. So what happens at mm. year 15 or year 40, you know, that, that need probably isn't going away. Yeah. No, especially not, not at the price of Toronto real estate, right? No, not at all. Not so at that, all. that I think, I think people were hoping that there might be some attention paid to the need for, um, affordable mandates. And I don't, I don't know that it was in that report. In fact, I'm pretty sure it wasn't. Mm-hmm. So what do you anticipate? I know you said we, we talked about it being an election year. These things take a lot of time, as we've talked about in the past, like a lot of time to build housing and so on. And I know they talked about it being, you know, their ambitious plan of 1.5 million um, units over the next 10 years. Are we going to see anything in the immediate future, though, to look after this problem of uh, short supply in our province, in the city, and huge prices, high prices? Well, I think people are mobilizing. I think, you know, there's a lot of interest. I know um, developers who are, in many cases, homeowners now are looking at how they can uh, maximize their uh, the equity they have in their homes by building on mm-hmm. garden suites and so on. I think the city has taken leadership in building more affordable units with their Housing Now program. Um, and I think the province has a chance to even, well, the minister told me he had time to act before the next election. So that's June. So he's got a legislative session left in which he could do some things like limit those consultations, look at that exclusionary zoning, um, you know, offer those kinds of incentives for uh, municipalities to uh, move planning applications through the system faster. So he's got some time to do some things. But I don't think like 10 years, even if they get reelected, 10 years, really, it's not a lot of time to do this kind of transformational vision of the housing system, because there's, there's almost nothing that this report doesn't touch on. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, like you said, those, um, the things like the garden suites and, and laneway housing, I mean, it, they're not a huge solution, but it's a start. You know, it really is a start, and it's basically from a municipal point of view, it's um, at least, like I said, something. Well, and it has transformed neighborhoods in some, like upzoning, as it's called, has transformed places like Seattle, for example, I gather, is awash in, in these backyard homes. It's really, some neighborhoods don't resemble what they used to. They fit in many more people. And the one thing that Toronto experts, people like Anna Bailau, who leads the housing file at City Hall, the one thing that the Deputy Mayor Bailau always says is we need success to feed success. So we need people to see this so they can see that it is not ugly, that it is not going to, to, you know, turn their neighborhoods into some kind of, you know, drop-in center. Um, and, and more people will be inspired to build it. And certainly with the price of real estate these days, more people will have the equity to build it if they own a home already. Exactly. Yep. It's so true. And I have a lot of, uh, people talking about that as well. I really do. Wow. Okay. So there is hope. There is some short-term hope and, um, let's see what happens. Let's see what happens through, uh, the next 10 years then. <laughs> Hopefully we'll be around for it, Des. Yeah. Yeah. I sure hope so. Tess, thanks very much for joining us again on Soul in the Six. You take care. My pleasure. Thanks, Tess. And that's our latest episode of Soul in the Six. 
we really hope that some of these recommendations will help our supply problem here in the city of Toronto and right across the country. I'd like to thank my producers, Doug Downs and Steve Kassar of Podcast at Paw. If you like this podcast, please leave a rating or a review or share it with a friend. And to get in touch with me, you can email me at des at desmondbrown.ca. I also have a website, in the six realestatecom and that's six spelt with the number six IX, you know, the way Drake does it. Until next time, I'm Desmond Brown. Mm-hmm.